Hi, uh, my name is Bobby, and I serve as one of the pastors here. If we can turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, it will also be on the screen for you to see as well. I will read from verse 20. The title of today's sermon is A Mother's Request. A Mother's Request. Verse 20. Then the mother of sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what is it that you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right and one on your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, referring probably to the Romans, lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you for the grace and mercy for sinners like me, like for those who are carrying burdens that they cannot express in their hearts for their children, their spouse, their marriage, their work. We pray, Lord God, would you meet with everyone where they are and would you hear the cries of their heart and would you comfort them and assure them of your presence, of your love for them, and who you are before them. So we thank you for this time, for your truth to impact us and comfort us, and we pray all of this in your holy name. Amen. The context that leads up to this encounter with Jesus, uh, with Jesus and James and John's mother, uh, was Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem and getting his disciples to accept the truth because for them, they didn't think that Jesus was going in to die, even though he kept saying it over and over, that he was going to Jerusalem to fulfill his purpose to suffer, be crucified, and to be resurrected on the third day. Even though the popular belief of all the Jews at that time was that a Messiah would come who would be very much like King David, who would free Israel from the tyranny of the Roman occupation by being a great king who would counter the Roman armies. And so we can see Matthew chapter 20 right before the text that we looked at what Jesus was conveying to his disciples so clearly, but they couldn't hear. So let me read it for you in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, 
see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged, and then to be crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So he couldn't have been clearer. Right before all of this, before the mother of James and John comes and starts begging before Christ, the disciples were actually greatly concerned that they would be approaching Jerusalem, and Jesus kept reinforcing this the third time in Matthew's account of the reality of how he has to die. They wanted him to stop talking this gloom and doom speech constantly about how he has to die. He wanted Jesus to be like, we're going in there, we're going to take over, and then we're going to rule over and set the people of God free. It was supposed to be an inauguration of his challenge toward the Roman Empire. They wanted to confirm that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to take his proper place on the throne. They were going to be a part of his imminent reign. But they were in denial. Jesus couldn't have said it any clearer to their face why he was going to Jerusalem. He needed to die. Die for their sins. Die so that we can live. And so let's look at this text through these three points so hopefully it'll clarify what Jesus was trying to do in the mother's heart as well as ours. The first point will be a mother's plea, the second, drinking from the cup, and third, a ransom for many, which is the destiny for Christ and also those who follow him. So let's look at the first point, a mother's plea. James and John's mother's plea was the most earnest longing and desire for what she thought was best for her children. Much like all of the parents sitting in this room, and some of you, literally the children of those parents who did everything in their power to set you up for success in this world. We don't want our kids to suffer. Though we know it is inevitable in this world because we see it all over the news, every single day, from social media to every TV to newspaper, we know that there is suffering, and not only little, but great suffering waiting for all of us. We've experienced it, and so therefore, we want to prevent it from happening to our children. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to have as a parent to want that for our kids. But she was watching her sons suffer as poor fishermen Under the taxation and the oppression of Rome, they were fishing and they would give away so much of their money and everything that they worked so hard for, for this army that was oppressing God's people. And so they felt that rebellion and that anger against the Romans. Not only the Romans, but their own people were rising in the ranks as tax collectors and others abusing their own people to continue to rise in position. But her sons were the lowest of low. Every morning they would wake up before anyone else, go fishing, and that they would return, whether with nothing or something. But they were never going to advance more than that. 
But the crazy thing was, there were whispers that the Messiah had come. Jesus was starting to multiply fish and bread. He was healing the sick, that the dead were rising. And something inside this mother realized that her two sons, who were nobodies, that no one cared about, the Romans couldn't even care less that they existed, that these two sons of hers were among the three who were closest to Jesus. The inner sanctum, the inner crowd of the most important historical figure who will ever come. And so there was hope that was growing inside of her that her sons would not just remain fishermen, but they would do something important in history. So much like our own hope for our children. For many of us, when our kids start speaking at a young age, we're like, oh my God, I have a genius we need to get them in a special school and they're going to dominate the world. Like anytime they draw something, it's like, oh my God, look at the facial features. They're going to be the next Rembrandt, right? There's some part of us that wants to curate and protect and raise up our children to be great. Because people who are great are comfortable in this world and they're protected from all the pain in this world. So that's our heart. Many of us grew up under immigrant house, like myself, faced many challenges. We had to grow up fast. I remember my mom taking me into our apartment complex's washer and dryer, and I think I was fourth or fifth grade, something like that, and she showed me how to do laundry in fourth and fifth grade. When I got to college and my friends were like, I have to take all my laundry home because I don't know how to do it, I was like, what is wrong with you? I've been doing this almost for like a decade. Like, what are you doing with your life, right? For me, we had to grow up fast. We had keys to our house. We were making lamian after we got home. We were taking food out of the frozen section from Costco, and we made pizzas, and we ate it. My parents came home late at night at 11. We had to do our own homework. We had to find our own FAFSA. We had to secure our college. We had to apply. We couldn't take classes, and so we bought books. And we took the SATs without ever taking one class. We were doing dishes and cleaning the house. So when the latchkid generation became adults, we tended to overcorrect. And now we tend to rescue our children when we see any type of suffering or difficulty in our lives. We try to be in their lives from birth. We put literally headphones on the bellies of our wives to say, let's give them a better chance than any other kid. And then when they're born, we get them tutoring whatever they need because we don't want them to suffer. We coach every game because our parents didn't show up. We go to every award ceremony. We never miss one teacher's conference. Not one parent, but both parents are present. The heart motive is good. But oftentimes, it is a reactionary choice to our personal childhood trauma or pain. We say we will never let our kids go through what we went through. Our parents were distant. Our parents never loved us or held us or did anything. And so we say we're going to do the opposite. We're going to be at everything. We will sacrifice all things to be there and to support them. Common consensus among a lot of the bosses and managers that have resulted from parents 
who are in their children's lives and refuse to let them suffer is that we have children who are now entering into the workforce paralyzed by social anxiety. They walk into the foyer and what they feel is constant social anxiety that they are not good enough. Constantly comparing themselves to others and overwhelmed by the crippling fear of failure that they won't be able to get through whatever homework is before them because from when they were children, whenever they struggled, there was an adult right next to them helping them overcome instantaneously finding relief from those who had authority. A psychological study concluded that the future success of children could be predicted by parents who gave their kids chores at an early age of two to five years old as they struggled to put away the dishes and their toys and they complained and threw tantrums and they had to work through the emotional outrage that they were feeling inside and continue to allow them to work through their homework not providing instant relief, but praising them for trying, even failing, that it is the trying that is most important. Basically helping them develop grit, working through difficulty, sitting and wrestling through what they're facing. But we all know that the good and natural instinct of parents is that we carry with us the burdens of what we face and the trauma of what we experience with our own parents, and we don't want our children to go through the same pain, to feel alone in their struggle to do and take care of everything themselves, so instantly, immediately, we want to give them relief. But we are learning that it is very possible to meet and advocate for the immediate and future needs of our children, sometimes to the detriment of their long-term health and growth. Because we only can see one side of what we think is true. James and John's mother speaks on behalf of her cowardly sons because we can tell that when she pleads and she kneels before Jesus and asks for this, the position next to Christ, Jesus doesn't talk to the parent, the mother who was pleading before. He turns, and it's a plural you, and says, it's you that I need to address. I don't understand why your mother is speaking for you. And so the rest of the tale is Jesus addressing the brothers who hid behind their mother. But she begs. She enters into a posture of shame because she loves her kids more than she loves herself and her dignity. And she kneels before this rabbi and says, when you enter into heaven, remember, into your kingdom, remember my two kids that she would give it all so that her two sons can finally find their position in this world. You know, Pastor Peter, who is the lead pastor at Christ Central Tyson's, he's amazing. You know, after the first service, you know, one of our elders came up and said, wow, how amazing is Pastor Peter, right? And the way he leads, he's fearless, he goes after, you know, all the lost people, that he won't compromise and do what's easy, and he just, ugh! Such a good man. And I was like, that's right. He is a good man. But what people don't know 
and you should ask him if you ever want to hear his story, that when I was a college student, and maybe even sometime in the upper levels of high school, his mom, who attended church with me, used to come up to me weeping every day because her son was so lost. Into all the wrong things, expelled from school, beating up kids, just endless, endless walking away from the faith that his parents so cried out for every morning. And she would weep every morning, four or five in the morning for hours for her son. That she would never know that 30 years later that he would be a senior pastor at a church in Nova pursuing the heart of every broken person in this world to bring them to Christ that they may be saved. You see, here the scripture is pointing us toward the greater and perfect Father who for the sake of salvation and eternal good would let us remain to suffer under the hand of Rome and the world's corruption and its brokenness to suffer because we instead would cry out for mercy to remove our children from pain. What we would desire is that we ourselves would sacrifice ourselves so that our children would never suffer. And it is the heart of every parent that we would want this. But that Christ would keep us in that pain and that suffering. And then he would tell them that I myself will be destroyed by the very hand of that corruption in this world and the power of this world. Because for him, the father would have to give his only son to kneel before a world that did not recognize him but would destroy him and spit on him to take him to the cross to die for our sins so that he can secure our place in eternity as co-heirs with Christ. You see, God does all things for the good of those that love him, not in our time. We are limited in our knowledge of what we think should happen for our kids, for ourselves, and we would beg and plead with God to prevent the pain and suffering that we see all around us. But God says, I have to enter into suffering, and your children will enter into suffering. And in this world, we will all suffer. But it is for their good, because I am God, and I love them deeper than you and I could ever understand. Second, so Jesus offers that we must all drink of this cup that he will drink himself and that they will see it. That we have to see that our personal desire for our future and our loved ones, our children even, it is tainted by our own past, our current trauma, the sufferings that we went through, the unmet longings that we have experienced in this life. All these things influence what we cry out to God to bring for the loved ones we have because it is our wisdom. Whatever we can muster up in our own strength to believe is best for our children is what we bring before God and what he says he wants to do in the lives 
of our children, us, and those we love might be completely different. Recently, there's a, a social media trend, and it shows like wives and girlfriends walking up to you know, their spouse, and they've been married for 10, 15 years, and they ask a simple question. They're like, hey, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And the wives and girlfriends are shocked. They're like, why would you ask that question? That's a weird question to ask. And immediately after that, they would be like, every day. I think about it once a week. I think about it all the time. The fact is, when my wife asked me that question, (laughs) I couldn't lie, right? (laughs) So I was like, you know what? I think about it at least once a week, maybe more often. And she was like, what? How come you never talk about Rome ever? That's so crazy. That's so weird. Why would you do that? And I was like, well, the Ryder Cup is in Rome. Gladiator is a movie I love, so I think about it constantly. The U.S. and its government, the republic, I think about the Roman Empire, I think about advanced economy, the country, the powerhouse, the military, how it all failed, and it's nothing. And most of all, because I'm a pastor, everything I read throughout the Bible exists in the Roman Empire. And she's like, that's weird. Do you understand? I think about it a lot, but the fact is this story is entrenched in the Roman Empire. Everyone would be consumed with the Roman Empire. Everyone would think about Caesar. Everyone would think about the army, the Colosseum, the death, the gladiators. They would constantly think about how they're oppressed, that there's no way they would ever defeat this army and juggernaut before them. They needed a miracle. They needed a king so powerful, far beyond what they knew King David and King Solomon in their wisdom. They knew that they needed someone divine. They desire to be freed from this oppression to be a people who are proud. That's why they thought about it consistently and constantly. Michael Wilkins in his commentary says this. What may have first come to the minds of the disciples was the Roman occupation under which Israel suffered for decades, which meant heavy taxation and foreign military rule for oppressed people with such hardships, capturing those positions of power and authority is the best way to gain any measure of self-respect and significance. To pursue those positions of power and authority is an ambition that is valued highly among the power structures of the world. All of Israel, including the disciples and their mothers, are dreaming about a time when the Messiah would come to challenge the authority of Rome. What was at the forefront of Israel was that they are God's chosen people, but they don't live like it. They are rescued from the slavery of Egypt only to enter under the slavery of Roman rule. They are descendants of King David and King Solomon, and yet looked at a king who only submitted to the Roman rule, weak. They are descendants of the great prophets of Abraham and Moses to only enter into temple to hear people who wanted to compromise who they were. And so it was easy for them to long for a conquering Lord, a powerful Messiah and Savior. 
Michael Wilkins continues and he says, in other words, the prevailing dictum in the world is that ruling, not serving, is the best status for a human. But Jesus gives a different and shocking sort of ambition for us that must be the chief value of all disciples. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. A servant, diakonos, worked for hire to maintain the master's home and property, while a slave, doulos, was forced into service, conquered, dominated, much like the Jews. In human eyes, service is not dignified. These are two of the lowest positions in society scale. Yet Jesus reversed their status in the community of his disciples saying, they are great. They are first. The world values power. And you and I have to ask, do we value power or do we value servanthood? We have to be honest. Do we love rising in the ranks? When I talk to young people, they're always telling me they have to go from one job to the next to get a raise. This is the nature of Nova, of consulting life. You have to move from Price Waterhouse to something else, and I, I get lost in all the names, right? And they keep talking about moving and rising. They'd rather be the vice president and the CEO. They'd rather be somebody who makes the calls and not the ones who have to do the grunt work. It is in us. We want to lead. We want to be dominant. We want to be seen. We want to be in power. And to deny that is what the, what the disciples said to Christ. The denial of his call. I am going to the cross. Will you drink the same cup? I heard a story and our boss, I mean all bosses, right, <laughs> like to remind us, those who work under them, and this is one of the stories that are told from bosses, okay, so I wanted to show you. I thought it was hilarious, but makes a point. An eagle was sitting on a tree resting, doing nothing. A small rabbit saw the eagle and asked him, can I also sit like you and do nothing? And the eagle answered, sure. Why not do the same? So the rabbit sat on the ground below the eagle, and he just rested. Then all of a sudden, the fox appeared, jumped on the rabbit, and ate it. And the moral of the story, to be sitting and to be doing nothing, you must be sitting way, way high. As funny as that sounds, you and I believe it to our core. We want our kids to rise fast. We put away money in their five to nine early as humanly possible. We fight for them so that they don't have to go through the sufferings we went through. We want to give them power so that they are not looked down upon. We want to give them wisdom so that they can get through school and life and navigate everything fast. And we are heartbroken when they are overwhelmed by this world. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 5. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He went from a normal Jewish rabbi to all of a sudden the glory of God. They saw it. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elisha, like dead prophets, and Jesus shining like the sun. He was still speaking. Behold, the bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So it was easy for James and John to make the leap that here is the Messiah who will set our people free. Only three of the disciples saw the glory of God and Moses and Elijah, and they were certain. And so when they were on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus kept saying, hey, I have to go and die, he was like, no. You have to show your glory. You have to be the Messiah that we have been waiting for. We are dying as people. Jesus wanted them to see that he came to address the greater need of the people. Far more than the oppression and the day-to-day life of suffering under this broken world, all the pain, suffering of everyone who suffers, he wanted to address the thing that was bringing all the evil in this world. The evil in us, the evil that continued to destroy the very people that he created to be image bearers of God were living as people who aren't even humans hurting one another and killing and murdering and destroying for their own benefit. And so he came to address that. Not to be another ruler, but he needed to be a servant to address the brokenness in every single one of us at the cost of his own life. The most powerful being in the universe who created all things knew that he had to lay down his power so that we, who were destroying one another, could have life, freedom. So when Jesus talked about going to the cross, it seemed ludicrous to the disciples. They tried to convince him otherwise. But here in this text is where I found profound hope In verse 22, it says this. Jesus addresses the two, James and John. He says, "Uh, you have no idea what you're asking to sit at the right and left. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And with confidence, the two brothers are like, we are able. Let's go do it. We're going to take on the Roman army. We're going to sit with you, and we're going to make sure that we free all of the people in their hearts. They were thinking, as long as you are with us, we will destroy the Roman Empire. And Jesus, hearing that foolish talk, he says to them, you will 
drink my cup. These are the very same men who would run and hide when they came to take Jesus away. These are the very same men who answered without knowing anything, saying that they would stand with Jesus only to betray him when he needed them the most. But isn't it hopeful and reassuring that even under these circumstances, these men, Jesus predicts and prophesies that they will one day drink the same cup that he will. That they will be courageous and strong and willing to die so that others can flourish. That they would face death so that others can live. Because the gospel reminds us that the hope of our sanctification is not how we are today. What power we give into today, what foolish notion we carry with us today. Jesus assures us today that one day soon he will sanctify us to a point where we will lay down our lives so that other lives can be saved. In this dialogue, Jesus promises that he will do it. He will change James and John. Just as Peter's mom pleaded with me for Peter, and I did. I went down to school. I met with Pastor Peter when he was in college. I fed him steak. I pleaded with him to stop living a crazy life and come back to the Lord. Nope, didn't help. He just was like, thanks, Bob, love you, and then just kept going. Just as Peter's mom wanted instant transformation and used every resource, including daily prayers and weeping before God and moving in the lives of everyone who knew Peter, it would take decades for Peter to get to a place where he would return to the Lord. He knew how he would do it. But he needed to go through decades of wrestling and running from God. You see, for us, we have our own timeline of what we want for those we love and even for us. And Jesus says, I know. One day you will drink from the cup. One day your sons will drink from the cup. I will do it. Lastly, ransom for many. Here is God's desire for us as believers. Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary says this. Every single one of us, we expect to read, the Son of Man came to rule. We don't expect to read, the Son of Man came to serve. We expect to read, the Son of Man came to live forever. We do not expect to read, the Son of Man came to give his life. But to Jesus the Son of Man and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one whose suffering and death bore the sins of many, are one person, the glorious mystery of the cross. Jesus is saying that for his followers, there is a trajectory toward servanthood, not a trajectory toward great power and control leading to comfort but that this is all that he will do in our hearts, that he will make 
us find him beautiful and the life that he gives to save us would become so compelling and powerful that we would be moved to want to do the same in the lives of others. Michael Wilkins says this. It says that Jesus will give his life as a ransom, lutron, which means the price of release a word often used of money paid for the release of slaves in the New Testament. Redemption or release as a theological concept is based on the experience of Israel's release from the slavery of Egypt. What Jesus is promising is that he would pay the ransom so that we are no longer under the influence and belief of this world system that somehow power will keep us from suffering and pain, not only for us, but our children. That we, if we can set up our children's lives well from the beginning to the end, that somehow we would prevent the brokenness of their heart, that we would be able to protect them to the end. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. He told his disciples who had seen the fullness of his glory, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for many sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's hard, especially for the parents that are sitting in this room, for you to hear that if you do everything in your human power to protect your kids from birth until they have a successful job and they are ready to conquer the world, Jesus in this text is saying, what good is it if they are protected from the pain of this world, but the sin of this world still remains in them? and you forfeit their soul. As parents, we want nothing more than to give our children the best and to protect them from suffering that the world constantly gives out. And Jesus is saying, what if all your efforts protect them from the things and horrors of this world but they lose their soul. And it is not saying that it's up to you. It is saying, do you have clarity that our goal as parents is not to pray for the protection and the safety of our children so that they never experience one ounce of suffering in this world, but it is for their soul that we plead for day and night for them to know Christ. Galatians chapter 2.9, one of the pastors preached this text, and when I read it, I was like, oh, shoot, because I was wrestling through this text. And in Galatians chapter 2.9, it says this, and when James and Cephas and John, that's Peter, who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to be circumcised. Isn't it amazing that James and John 
the ones who didn't know what they were saying, that Jesus had to correct over and over, God calls now the pillars of the Christian church. You and I exist here today because they suffered and they made mistakes and they didn't do all the right things and yet Christ sustained them to become pillars of the church. Michael Wilkins concludes his section about this text and he describes what happens to James and John. James became the first martyr of the church in Acts 12.2. And John experienced persecution and exile for all of his life, although apparently not martyrdom. They will share in Jesus' cup of blessing, but they must submit to the Father's will for their future, just as Jesus is doing. Jesus has come to fulfill the task assigned by the Father, which is not the path of glory, but of servanthood. Here is how the gospel is an upside-down kingdom. Greater intimacy with Christ calls for the surrender of the control of their lives, surrender of comfort to become a servant of all, and they did it voluntarily. They did it initially without even understanding it, but Christ led them to that end joyfully to be with the Savior. Uh, while I was at UVA, um, and I'll conclude with this story. I was given a small book. I'm not a reader by nature. I've had to learn to read through seminary, and now um, reading is a natural, regular thing. But when I was in high school, I literally avoided it with everything I had, right? So a lot of cliff notes and all sorts of things to just weasel my way out. But in college, I was gifted a book, Practicing the Presence of God. And so um, I read it. It was thin. And Nicholas Herman was his original name, joined the army due to extreme poverty. And he existed in 1635 in the midst of the great 30-year war in Europe. And he was taken prisoner by the German troops because they thought he was a spy. They threatened to hang him, tortured him. And he fearlessly answered that he is not who they thought he was. When the soldiers saw his courage and willingness to speak up, they released him. And he saw ghastly, ghastly things in his time during the war. The ghastly experience of the battle seared into his mind to such a degree that he fell back to his earlier days of religious upbringing. Even later on, he never spoke of the horrors that he had experienced. But the effects remained with him for the rest of his life. At the age of 26, he was so overwhelmed that he entered into a life as a religious hermit. He entered the priory as a lay brother and took on the religious name Lawrence of the Resurrection. Later on, we would affectionately call him Brother Lawrence. He spent the rest of his life, till his 70s, with the, with the community that he entered, where his primary assignment were working in the kitchen and in his later years, repairing sandals. He carried out his office to cook until his leg became ulcerated, at which point the superiors assigned him an easier task as a sandal maker. 
Lawrence suffered from a uh, kind of sciatic gout that made him limp all his life and worsened as the years went by. Despite his lowly position in life and how he lived for the rest of his life, his character attracted so many people to him that he had a reputation for experiencing profound peace and visitors flocked to seek spiritual guidance from him. There's a saying that he was ill three times gravely during the last years of his life. And good doctors helped him recover. And the first time that he recovered, he joked with his doctor, but on a serious note, he said, Doctor, your remedies have worked too well for me. You have delayed my happiness. As broken as his soul was, as destroyed as it was from poverty to illness, to disease, torture, rejection. For him, his unending joy was Christ and his presence in his life throughout the years washing dishes and eventually making sandals for the poorest of poor. So here's a quote that he said in his book, little tiny book you should all read. We can do is it up there? Do we lose? Oh, there it is. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan out of love for him. And when that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before him who has given me the grace to work Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. Lord of all pots and pans, as he affectionately calls his Savior, and things make me a saint by getting meals and washing up the plates. At the end of the day, for you and I, we will not be able to protect our kids at every moment and every brokenness that they will face in this world. There will be more times that they are on their own than with you and under your care. What is it that you cry out for? That he would be with them every second of every moment deeply in every failure and brokenness in this world or that you would be able to save them from all the pain. They need, more than anything, the nearness of God deep in their heart for the rest of their life. We need his nearness for the rest of our lives. Let's seek that for those that we love. Let's pray. I think in Nova, we all seek power to protect those that we love. And I think disciples wanted the same. Jesus, will you come into power to protect us from this pain?
And Jesus said, I came to give everyone more than that they ever would long for. Something that they don't even understand. Can we go before God? And can we cry out, God, I long for your nearness, not only for me, but everyone we love. I don't understand even what it is that I know and long for. But I place me and those that I love into your hands. Can we pray? And I will pray for us. Lord God, in a world We're out of love, deep, deep, unchanging love. We desire to protect those that we love, to gain power and strength, to be able to do so. You went to the cross to be rejected, to be the servant of all, a slave to set us free. To be a people who understand that what the people who we love the most need at the end of the day is your presence because this world is just but a breath and a short time but what await us is glory in eternity would you grant us a prayerful heart and the hope that you will do likewise in our lives. We pray all of this in your name.